Hello and welcome to the stack. For this show, I'm keeping it local. In fact, I'm going to my very own neighborhood in London, Soho. First, I pay a visit to David Owen, co-founder of Idea, the iconic London-based publishing house at their space in Wardour Street. And then to Archer Street to speak with Kira Morris from the Fans magazine, which just published their 18th issue. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Let's talk about Idea, the renowned publishing house that is also the longtime bookseller of Dover Street Market. They sell some of the rarest and coolest magazines and books there is, with a strong presence on social media too. I remember buying a book with them about sexy record jackets from Japan. Wow. I was hooked by them. I decided to pay a visit to co-founder David Owen at their space in London's Water Street. Idea is me and my partner and now wife, Angela Hill's project. And we really were almost both of us always doing it in the sense that we were buying and selling books. Well, we sold books to Sarah from Colette the year before Colette opened. And she'd come around to the apartment we were living in in West London and she'd seen, because we'd moved in together and we had some of the same books. And so there were like two copies of this and two copies of that, you know. And then it was like classic things like Cowboy Kate, the Sam Haskins book or whatever. There was a certain thing in that period, which is like early 90s, I guess. And she was like, yeah, I'm opening this store. And we were like, okay. You know, like there was a lot of people who used to come around and they all had plans and we were all right, whatever. But we did it. And then by... By luck, obviously, Colette was widely regarded as the best shop in the world, which wasn't a bad place to start. And then Dover Street Market opened in London, and we had a little bit of a history of Comme de Garçons, and Sarah helped us, and then we ended up in Dover Street, which was considered by many people as the best shop in the world, which uh, was nice. So that's the platform that it came from. But we were actually all, both of us, doing different things at the same time, and it didn't need to be like a full-time job. But what happens is if you, it doesn't have to be books, but if we talk about that, if you buy a book once and sell it for a profit, it is very difficult to walk past the same book for £30, which you know is £300, even if you already have it. It's really difficult. I think other people in the world do walk past them and just go, oh, damn, that's so cheap or something like that. I paid X for that. I don't know, whatever they think, but not if you have a mechanism for selling so then it doesn't really matter. Like I was writing TV shows, Angela was taking photographs. We were, you know, pretty busy. But you can't not buy these books. And then, of course, once you do that, you then want to sell them. And so Idea continued and developed. But we gave it a name in 2009. And we both quit our careers and only did Idea since 2009. So that is how long it's been going. What about the space? We're here in Soho, which, by the way, I think is the perfect location for a place like Idea. How long have you had this kind of space where actually people can actually come by appointment only, right? Yeah, they can. Originally, I was on this floor of this building at 101 Wardour Street and making a TV show because most of these offices back in the day were 
TV companies or related to that. And upstairs used to be an Indian film archive, uh, wow. which was pretty amazing. And on the first floor, we were sandwiched between them, but on the first floor were people who invested in movies, British films and things like that. The whole thing was like, when, we, when I was first here, you could look out the window and see people with film canisters on porter trolleys going up and down the curbs on Wardour Street. And at the same time, they introduced the first high-speed ISDN lines, and it began to kind of like change a little bit. But that was what it was all about. And then I, I think I quit the TV job to do idea, and then we needed somewhere to pack and ship from. The room we're in now, which is tiny, we had half of. I re-rented half of this room for £50 a week, and... The other half was entirely packed with probably over a thousand pornographic DVDs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which, Very simple. Yeah. And then because we were like quite popular, like in what we do, even though we were tiny, like people would come around, like even then, to pick up books or like in theory on an appointment for like half a room and the rest. But people like, I mean, major people came. Bruce Weber and Joe McKenna and Nan Bush came around one day when we had half a room. We'd have to turn all the DVDs around so you can't see what they were. It was pretty impressive. We went from £50 a week, which sadly is not anymore. Then we took the whole room. Then gradually we made life a little bit awkward for the other people who were on this floor. And then they moved out and we took over the floor. And then we took over the upstairs, which we have. And then we're signing a lease now, maybe even today for all three floors of the building, leaving Bruno's, the cafe at the bottom, which no one, which is where we eat, so it's kind of important to keep. Uh, but then we have a, a, an HQ, we have a whole building, still with a front door that you cannot just walk through, which is probably the best way to have a shop, which has kind of special and wonderful things. In some ways, like, we sell an awful lot of hats. Like, the truth is, we sell, at the moment, we sell as many hats as we do books, including the ones we publish like thousands and thousands of hats. So in truth, if we did have a storefront, then yes, you would pick up all of those sales. But it doesn't work so well for sexy jackets that you bought, which is a, which is a confusing book in some ways from the 1970s, because even then some of the record sleeves in there were cancelled. So it was pretty amazing. Like It's that kind of thing. It needs a little bit of a, a barrier to entry, perhaps, or a qualifying in of a customer. So, but people still come in and like don't buy anything at all and just sit here for ages reading one magazine. This happens, but um, I can understand that. Look at me, I'm, I'm sitting close here to a very, you know, perhaps one of the first copy of Details magazine. It's Boy George on the cover. I mean, it's impressive, it looks so beautiful. And I didn't realize that actually details looked like this, for example. Yeah, and they're just casually there because we haven't got room on the shelves for them, and the, that whole pile is. There's not how many magazines are there? Nine or something. It's about two thousand pounds worth of magazines. So and they're Let's very and they're be very careful. delicate. <laughs> yeah, and there were like we had like there was one customer who came round and she's a really like a favourite of ours, a stylist, and she'd really wanted this Sex Pistols and Seditionaries book, which at the time was super rare, and. I did a bit of a reveal of it. She'd come round and then I sort of turned round with it and went, look what we have. Like, all very excited. And she went, oh, like that. And just whoosh, with a full cup of tea that we just made oh. up, straight across this table. So the bottom two books, I mean, it was thousands of pounds worth of damage. So she felt, yeah, anyway. 
she bought the book for £1,300, which went quite a long way to paying off some of the damage. But it's, um, but we like that, but you can't do that so much with like a an open store. Mm. So, but we still have that kind of like excitement and disaster. It's not like, you see what I mean? Because I think some people think, oh, if you have to make an appointment, they have to come in and sit here with white gloves on. Do you see what I mean? And like, there's going to be like a camera on them the whole time or something, which is not whatsoever. I've got to be honest, I was almost thinking like this in my first visit. So <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh God, I have to be careful. But I mean, I'm drinking water on the table very close to the details yeah. magazine. I will be careful, don't worry. No. And also, David, I would like to ask, what makes the cut? I mean, because everything I see, like, I, I love looking at the new titles that you add every week. And they're quite special, and it feels to me they're very unique, hard to find. But what makes the cut actually here to be an idea? It can't just be like an old kind of fashion title, okay? No, it can't. And it's um, so I called them superbooks, and the reason was that they have like special properties which are kind of usually more than the sum of their parts. And very importantly, us being called idea is that that quite often the idea of the book is again like equal to its content and informational value that means that they can include and often do books which were flawed in their concept mm. books which were somehow misconstrued in their intention or the combination of artist and publisher they didn't both want the same thing that happens sometimes there are books that get recalled because they were straight up either not illegal but like somebody has legally objected to them they were bootlegs in the first place or something like that and then they're taken off sale so they become like special because they're so one hard to find but also because they have this element of like um, a brave kind of danger in, in the first place that's quite nice so I mean there's an example like it's best to give like if you give one then you can kind of understand all of them because they're all completely different stories and they all have like some story about them but there's one called um, The Bangy Book, which is an, a photo book of New York street boys. And you can tell by looking at it that the photographer, who was, I think, German, and it's a German publisher, was kind of obsessed by the look of these guys in New York. And this is like 1980, 82. So it's around the sort of time of like emergence of hip hop and things. So there's some like good gold chains going on. There's some real like Canal Street fake Vuitton sort of holes and bags and things like that he was obviously with a real fashion eye but every 10 pages the guys just drop their trousers okay. and when you first see the book it's the it's the biggest surprise like it really is like what the hell and then you realize oh the the ones where they're naked are a studio shot they're not on the street like all of the other ones so clearly like he was did it separately, was sent back. And then later you get the hang of it when you see it again, you go and then you maybe try and find books by the same publisher thinking you're going to hit gold again, which is one way of finding things. Then you realise that every book by that publisher is gay, homoerotic publishing out of Germany in the 80s. So basically, there was a guy who had a photo project of how cool these New York street boys looked and the only person he could find a publisher were the people who make the homoerotic titles for a specific market and their deal must have been, but I'm not aware mm. of this, but I'm pretty sure. Mm. Yeah, we'll do it, but you've got to go back and get those guys to drop their trousers every 10 pages. It's the most extraordinary thing. So it's things like that makes it just 
unbelievably good. We are still primarily selling it to people who also think those guys look incredibly cool and they're looking at the exact styling and the way that the jeans are hanging and all of that kind of thing. But then again, we're selling it to people who just find the whole thing like hilarious and reinvest in that story. It's happened to them in some way, not the exact thing by any means, but they'll have had to compromise somewhere in their career because we invariably sell things to creative people who make stuff. And so sometimes a lot of these books, like in the fashion world, I think people think, oh, designers come in and they buy a book and then they copy that cut of that coat or something, which is not actually what happens. I mean, it's very rare. Usually what happens is a designer comes in, buys lots of books and already has lots of books and has them around them where they work. And it's more or less like a challenge. Because every day you're going to be there with a blank sheet of paper or a cloth or a meeting with your team who do the sneakers or whatever it might be. And so around you, you have like the most extraordinary books of the last 50 to 100 years or whatever. Many of which are like flawed or brave or just plain stupid, but they're there. And that's it. That's how you set the bar and the tone for the day. And then you have to create the handbag that's how I think most of our kind of like not our best customers but the the ones that we fit closest to I think that's how they buy books and that's why we buy them because we think they're going to get it if you see what I mean of course I'm not asking for your sources but do you do you have specific countries in mind as well for the curation because I did look of course there's a lot of kind of Japanese publications as well are there countries there as well there are pockets of of places where you can find those treasures. I mean, I can say yeah. treasures. Yeah, yeah, Japan is phenomenal. And it's completely different to anywhere else. And this is because, as most people know, like post-war, the whole couple of generations, I think, were kind of obsessed with the West. Mm. And so, and their economy was booming in that period, thanks to the Sony Walkman and various other yeah, yeah, yeah. factors. So they would buy, like crazy, books out of... Europe and America. And when you look around in here and you think you see a lot of Japanese books, what you actually see is more than double that because a lot of the European and American books that you see here were bought by us in Japan and brought back over here because they bought so much then. So if you wanted to find multiple copies of every Helmut Newton book, you're probably better off looking in Japan than anywhere else because what happened was that that couple of generations bought all those books then, slowly, at a certain point, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, or whatever, their economy kind of tanks. At the same time that those people who bought those books get a lot older. So they then want to get rid of them. Japan wasn't very open. Like, if you sent them an email in 1995 or something with, like, a .co.uk or .com, they wouldn't even reply to you. <laughs> it wouldn't matter. And you didn't have many options for writing in Japanese, etc., etc., then, like, gradually, like, PayPal and tra Google Translate and this kind of thing kicks in, and they start opening up, and at the same, they have deep, multiple, multiple, multiple copies, obviously, piled up, but they were the only people who weren't selling them, so they missed the first wave of the internet when all the good books didn't disappear, they all went to the right people, if you see what I mean, like, poof, gone, in one day, everything was bought, that was it. And there, so Japan remains that thing. Then, over and above that, Japan also made their own books and invariably made them better. So sometimes even a book, let's say a book about Winona Ryder, it was published in America with American text by the editors of whatever People magazine or some whatever the hell magazine it was. 
pretty ordinary book. The Japanese version, which only has a translation in it, but they change the art direction, change the cover. This it's dynamite. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. It's the same book, but they have a different. Not just putting it like you know running backwards or whatever like that. They just changed the dynamic of these things, made them very special. So there's multiple reasons why Japan is still easily the best place in the world to buy anything. But then in terms of our main thing, which is very important, is once you've found a book, like the Bangy Boys book, for example, you can then quite mechanically really find it again and again. So when we first ever saw the Vim Vendors Paris Texas book, which is probably our best-selling vintage book, yeah, we thought it was amazing. That was a long time ago. Like that was, uh, we must have found that like 1990. It came out in 1984. I didn't know there was this German book of the whole film then, mm. you know. But in 1990, I would have found it. So we we bought and sold them. Oh, goodness knows how many, like 20 a year. And all that happens, you can keep keep finding it, but the invariably the price will have to go up at a certain point because you've bought and sold all of the ones at $40, so now you're on $90, then you're on $150, then you're on, you know, etc. Until it gets to a point where, you know, no one wants to buy anymore, I guess. Like, it doesn't never happen with Paris, Texas, but other books can get priced up so high that it, mm. it's insane. But the hard bit is not finding things again, which you can use all the tools of the internet, and you can also just get on a plane and go to Tokyo and go through all the bookstores and you can go to New York and LA and you can go through all the bookstores and find them that way. The hard bit is the book that you haven't found yet. And that I think is where idea is probably uh, like it, not a cut above. We're just like, we're different to other booksellers in that because we established this thing of writing a newsletter every week about a super book we kind of have a commitment to find something newsworthy. So we're like more like a journalist. Because the truth is, if it's going to be one copy of it, and there's 30,000 people on the newsletter, and theoretically half a million plus on Instagram, it's not hard to sell the one copy. What's hard to do is entertain a lot of people over a long, long period of time, like a good decade, still reading that newsletter because they actually are, want to see the pictures and the funny text about the in the insight maybe or whatever about what we're doing so the story of the bangy boys book was told on one of those newsletters only a handful of people own that book it's hard to find mm. but i guess like there might be i don't know thousand plus who would have some vague recollection of there being this funny book where the guys drop the track you know what i mean like that's what we're doing i want to see that book <laughs> yeah i'll show you in a minute if we've got it <laughs> yeah uh, but it it's very hard to find the next book, especially when I probably do 30 odd a year. We're probably on about three or 400 things that we've written about. Vast swathes of it was not Googleable at all until we wrote about it. Loads of it's like that. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure. For more information on IDEA, go to ideanow.online. And finally, on the show, I've welcomed to our studio here in Midori House, Kiro Morris, deputy editor of The Fans magazine, a current affairs and satirical quarterly also based in Soho. They just published their 18th issue, themed around coming of age. Kieran tell us more about it and the rising success of the magazine. So The Fence is, um, as we bill ourselves, the UK's only magazine 
which is a tongue-in-cheek little nod to the magazine Army Man. We are predominantly inspired by Spy Magazine and Private Eye and The New Yorker and places that we've grown up loving and publications that we've adored. And I like to always say that we're a magazine for people that love magazines and people who love good quality writing, exciting new writers, established old writers, illustrators, all the arts and of all the forms that magazines can take. We're a love letter to that. And we are we try and be enjoyable to read, to handle. We're not too stiff-backed, so you can put us in the bag. We can get bashed about. We can go on the train. We can be with you until you've finished it cover to cover. But that's what we are. We're current affairs. We're satire. We're everything. We're anything. I love that. And you are satire indeed. But there's also a side of the magazine that's quite, you know, investigative journalism, basically. And you guys did amazing stories about that. Is that a big part of the, of, of the title and what you guys do? That's a huge strand of what we do. Uh, it's kind of the, the journalistic ballast that stops it from flying off into the sky with all sorts of silly ideas, as it so often could. But the investigative stuff is something that we are really passionate in trying to give an outlet for supporting writers who have never gone through the long-form process, who have never worked on, say, like a five-act structure or never gone through right of reply with sources and had their work legaled. And we like to think that those that work with us on that, some of them are incredibly established investigative journalists who teach us in the way that they go about their work. But also, it's people who have a story and know that it can be told in a compelling way. And quite often the stories that we're proudest of running are the ones where we've saw that writer at the very beginning of the process and worked with them and coached them. And by the end of it, those pieces are picking up secondary traction. They're delighted with them. They're delighted with their copies. They're going on to work for other places to write for us again. And I think the investigation side of things, it's it's something that a lot of people want to break into. And to be that outlet in British journalism, to be somewhere that still supports that kind of work, is immensely important to us. Well, and most importantly, I think the magazine is doing well, right? Because I love here on the stack to cover new titles, but I love to talk about the ones that are quite, you know, very resilient. And I think you guys are in a very good moment as well, perhaps, you know, financial or expansion of readers. You know, what can you tell us about this? Oh, we've had an amazing year, an amazing two years, really. The magazine has evolved in its identity. It's coming to a point now where the standard of writing is just extraordinarily high and it's come so much further on as we've got better as editors as we've got better as people who run the business and you know everyone involved everyone in the editorial team has a hands-on approach with the business ideas are free-flowing everything is participatory everything is horizontal and we're immensely proud of what we're building and we have that sensation now of momentum of you know readers in vietnam in the united states in i'm sure there's someone on the Isle of Skye, who has written to us and said that he gets the magazine and loves it all the way from there. So to know that, of course, there is a Soho edge and a London edge to what we do, and there is a focus around the United Kingdom, there is a relatability there. There is a relatability in the humour. And we love that, and we're so happy with that. That's amazing. Give us a little preview of issue 18. So it's our coming of age. We're throwing sort of an 18th birthday for ourselves where we've brought in a variety of really, really amazing writers that we've admired for so many years to talk about different aspects of coming of age. So we have the novelist John Banville, who is agreed amongst all of our table, at least, as one of the finest prose stylists of his generation, of any generation. 
writes about his first love and goes back to his teenage years and explores that relationship and how that made him feel and the role that coming of age has had in his life and how that's been driven by the women in his life. We also have Jeff Dyer, who opens up the issue wonderfully with this wonderful little essay about how you never really can go from oneself to another. And he explores that through looking at the coming of age trope in cinema, in sport, in all of these different things. And we're just so delighted to have those two writers in because they are absolute idols of ours. But along that, we have stories that are not about coming of age at all. So we don't like to be completely um, bound to our theme. It's always a suggestion. There are little nods here and there. But we've got some great stories about the Undsagi Maid Cafe that's just opened and the idea of importing that Japanese maid culture to the UK, that cafe culture. That's a hilarious piece. We've got some silly little jokes dotted all the way through. Some jokes about Stephen Gerrard, they were mine. Um, some silly jokes about the theatre, they were mine as well. It's a real good grab bag of all different things, and we are confident that this is the very best issue we've ever put out. I have to say, it's hard to do good satire as well. So I think it's, you know, I admire people that can do it well, like like the fans in a way. Well, that's the challenge. I mean, you've got to make people laugh. Yeah. That's the difference between good satire and bad, and we hope that's what we do. We hope that's what we deliver. We hope that there's enough variety in the comic style that it isn't just all silly gags and wordplay and, you know, ephemera and miscellany and all of that. But at the same time, illustration drives a lot of that humor and a lot of that satirical edge. We have a really great relationship with the guys at Viz, who are also a big inspiration for us. Davy Jones, who illustrated the cover and is found all the way through the magazine, has drawn some of the funniest things that I've ever seen for us. And I think one of the greatest privileges of the magazine is having an illustrator like Davy who will draw whatever you ask him to. And hopefully with that, there's something hilarious that's never been put on paper before that people had never imagined before that they then associate with us and associate with him and enjoy. And perhaps due to self-interest as well, but what's your favorite spot in Soho for a drink? Oh, my favorite spot in Soho, I'm going to have to say the White Horse for emotional mm. reasons. Because that is where I went on my first day. Is it the one close joining. to Carnaby Street? No. Uh, no, it is the one on the corner of Archer Street. So Carnaby. we are right on Archer Street. The Lyric is a good pub. I saw Stuart Lee in there one time and I got very excited. But the White Horse is my favourite because that's where I went for the first post-work drink. And I found a hat on the wall that had a logo from an organisation that my mum was in in the 1980s. And I just thought, oh my God, that's just the most serendipitous thing in the whole wide world. So I've always seen a little bit of magic in that pub and that first day. So for emotional reasons, the White Horse. I'll see you there for a pint. Then. Amazing. Uh, Kieran, thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Kieran. For more information, go to the-fans.com. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And we'll be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at monaco.com as well. Before we go, a little song for you. Hitomi Toriyama with Sexy Robot. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It's goodbye from me. <laughs>